1: Hey, folks, it's Evan Ratliff, your co-host of the Long Form Podcast. We are on hiatus this week, so we're sending you an old episode that we love, which is an interview that I did a little while back with Samin Nosrat. She's the author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And uh, at this time, not at the time we did the interview, she is now the star of an incredible Netflix program of the same name. So if you hadn't heard of her then, you've probably heard of her now. This was a really fun interview. And we thought you might like to hear it again. So happy holidays, everyone. And we'll see you in the new year. Samin, welcome to the Form Podcast.
2: It's a lifelong dream to be here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're the first person to ever say that, I have to say. Uh, but it's it's wonderful to have you on. I, I've i known, we have a lot of friends in common, and I've met you before, I think, through Pop-Up Magazine uh, when you did that years ago. But the, the occasion of getting to talk to you and you being in town is that you have this book out, uh, which I am absolutely fascinated with, and I want to talk about in great depth. But first I want to talk about how you became a chef at all. Okay. Well, we should say, like, this book, which is called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, is a book about cooking that's also sort of a cookbook. I mean, it is a cookbook, but I perceived it kind of differently than a normal cookbook. You can describe it better than me, perhaps.
2: That's about, I have no really line. I'm like a cooking school in a book, or I for a while I was calling it an uncookbook, <laughs> oh. <laughs> or unrecipes, or I don't know. It's just <laughs> my philosophy on cooking and teaching you how to cook everything.
1: yeah. Um, But a big part of it is the story of how you became a cook, how you became a chef. So let's start there because you didn't grow up wanting to be a chef, although it sounds like your mother was an incredible cook.
2: Yeah, my mom is a great cook and I always say I've loved, I really have always loved to eat, which I believe is probably the biggest prerequisite to being a good cook. So yeah, I had that part in line. But it was never my goal to be a chef. It didn't even ever occur to me that that could be something I could do. I didn't spend a ton of time in the kitchen as a kid. My brothers and I sort of, my family's from Iran and my mom cooks really beautiful Persian food, which is what we grew up eating every day. And so there's a lot of handwork and just like busy work involved in making Persian food. There's so much vegetable prep and like chopping herbs and picking fava beans and So we were a lot of times enlisted to help with those things that like many hands popping fava beans Mm -hmm. makes it goes a lot faster. But I did not have ambitions of working in a restaurant. I didn't even think about people who worked in restaurants.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And did you the way you describe your mother's cooking? I mean, it sounds amazing, but I wondered if the things you're describing, like the snack that you describe that your mom brings when you go to the beach, which sounds extraordinary, is just the. Persian cooking equivalent of like my mom making bologna sandwiches. Yeah. Or if it's actually your mom took things to a different level than you would find in an ordinary
2: Persian household. Persian household. She is an extraordinary cook for sure. Like I've eaten at a lot of other Persian households and my mom's food is really good. People even who are not related to her would come to our house to eat her food. But I do think there are some Iranian sensibilities in cooking that just sort of line up with where I ended up with this book and sort of my philosophy of what good food is. So our snack that we had, which was lavash bread and feta cheese and cucumbers or sometimes cold grapes at the beach, it was really delicious, but that's a pretty common snack (laughs)
1: so, <laughs> mm-hmm. I should yeah. <laughs> also add that, uh, in case my mom is listening, that she was also a really good cook, that a fried bologna sandwich, which we had all the time, is a Southern delicacy. Sounds really good. And yeah. it was, uh, <laughs> I would eat one right now. Me too. Um, so you didn't grow up, that you didn't say, all right, now I'm going to go to cooking school, now I'm going to do this. But I, I love the story of how you first got a job. I mean, first of all, you started at the top. In terms of restaurants.
2: Where, yeah, (laughs) kind of, it was a very, the whole thing was very serendipitous and very poetic and made for a great introduction to a book. So basically what happened was I moved to Berkeley to go to college. I grew up in San Diego. And so I came to Northern California to go to college where I knew I wanted to be an English major. I thought I would graduate and be a poet. I wanted to go and get an MFA in poetry. And around the time it started to occur to me that maybe that that wasn't, Going to happen was when I accidentally fell into this restaurant. And the way what happened was when you come to Berkeley and you go to your freshman orientation, one of the things they inevitably say during that first week is, There's this restaurant in Berkeley, this famous restaurant called Chez Panisse. And to me, having grown up in San Diego, mostly eating home cooked food, sometimes eating pizza and Chinese food and Mexican food, I had zero concept of what a famous restaurant was. This was 1997. There were not you know, food blogs. There was no Anthony Bourdain or celebrity chefs on TV. Right.
0: right. There was
2: maybe the food. There was the Food Network, and I remember I, I did watch enjoy watching that. But you mm-hmm. know, chef chef life was not fetishized at that time. So. I just didn't understand what a famous restaurant was like I that I just didn't really so I was like okay well that'll probably never be part of my life and then the next year I fell in love and my boyfriend who was also a student was from San Francisco and so a big part of how we spent our time was eating and he was showing me all the places that he loved to eat at growing up and his dream had always been to eat at Chez Panisse so we decided to save our money I think we saved our money for seven or eight months and it was like we had this little box and we'd make bets and whoever lost put the money in the box or the leftover laundry quarters or whatever. like that you literally (laughs) saved change. Yeah. No, it was literally change. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's all we had. And so we saved that and... I remember the day of our reservation. We went to the bank and we exchanged it for two $100 bills and two $20 bills, and I felt this like overwhelming guilt that we were about to spend $220 on dinner. I mean, that's it was insane. I was like, you know, how are we going to justify this? And he calmed me down. He's like, we got to go do this. It's we've been saving for a long time, so we went and had this dinner. And Chez Panisse is divided into two restaurants. There's the sort of less formal cafe upstairs that has an à la carte menu, and the more formal original restaurant downstairs. So we were thinking we would only ever have one shot to go there, so let's go for the restaurant.
1: Go to the go to the downstairs. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what I yeah. remember from living in the Bay Area. Yeah. It was always like, well, you could get in the upstairs. Yeah. Maybe.
2: <laughs> but the downstairs yeah. I mean, they're both wonderful. So we went we ended up going downstairs. I was nineteen years old. And so we had this amazing dinner and the food was wonderful, but and I do remember what we had that night, but to me like what I remember so much more clearly is I had never been to a restaurant where I felt so cared for. It felt like eating in someone's home where there was always someone tending to you, making sure you had all the bread and butter that you needed, all of the water. Your wine was always poured. They were bringing us everything we could have possibly wanted the moment right before we realized we needed it. And it was amazing. And so the dessert was chocolate souffle. And when the server brought it to us, she asked me if i had ever had souffle before or if she could show me how to eat it. And I was like, Oh yeah, please show me like how, how does one eat this? And so she's like, Oh, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour the sauce in. And that way, every bite has some sauce in it. So I did that. And then she said, how is it? And I was like, well, it's really good. But you know, what would make it even better (laughs) is some cold milk. And, uh, and she was like, what? And she laughed at me and she was like, you want milk? Which at the time I had no idea of knowing that like, In fine dining, like, milk is considered for babies. Like, even to have a cappuccino (laughs) after 10 a.m. is considered, like, you're so uncouth. And so...
1: But if you were eating, like, some (laughs) cookies... Totally. a dessert...
2: And I still think to me, like, I'm like, oh, warm brownie, cold milk. Like, that's totally good. So she went in, she got the milk. And then she also brought us, like, two glasses of dessert wine to show us the refined accompaniment. And this was sort of, like, a generous sort of act. And, uh, yeah, it was really sweet. And it just was this magical inspiring, enchanting experience. And so I wrote a letter to Alice Waters and to the restaurant asking to be a busser. Which you
1: hand-delivered to the restaurant, (laughs) as I understand it.
2: Yeah, and I brought it in and They were like, oh, well, you just need to bring that over to the floor manager. So they took me over to the office and the floor manager was the souffle lady. So she remembered me and I remembered her. And I think, you know, in retrospect now, like all these years of knowing how restaurants work, I think she was really desperate. I think someone had probably just quit because she was like, can you start tomorrow? (laughs) Well, it made me wonder. I
1: mean, it's like the power of writing a letter to someone. But also, did you ever ask like Alice Waters or someone there like, How many letters do they get from people probably in culinary school who are like, I'll do anything. I just want to come work there. I just want to apprentice with you and see. I mean, they must get
2: dozens a day like so many letters like that and so I think coming in was a big part of it I think her remembering me and I think the timing I I did literally start the next day so (laughs) I really think they were desperate she was like you're on hand (laughs) and so I started bussing tables and you know like the very first task they had me do they walk you through the kitchen into the dining room where like I was supposed to vacuum the dining room and I remember you know the kitchen's lined with the walls are lined with copper and the cooks are all wearing their like gleaming white coats. And when they smile, it's almost like I really felt like I was in a cartoon or something because they smile and it's like ding, you know, like <laughs> their teeth are gleaming and they're all just so professional and quiet and masterful. And I just, I had never been in a place that was so efficient and beautiful and enchanting. And so immediately I was in love with this place. It just felt so incredible to be part of something like that. And also, I'm like the child of immigrants. I'm a crazy, insane overworker, overachiever. I always went to public school and was always like in the smart kids classes being like, why isn't everyone else working harder? And Shapenice was the first time I felt like I was sort of among people who were all these incredibly overachieving, highly performing people with the highest standards. And it was every day this awakening where You know, you would meet a cook and they would be making the most beautiful thing. And then later I'd find out that she'd ridden the women's Tour de France the year before, you know, or like like there was a bartender there at that time who came and tended bar for fun. And really what his day job was, was he was a Harvard trained architect with this like incredible architecture firm. There were just these people who all were magnificent, especially for a young person who's just looking for role models and stuff, you know. And Chez Panisse, by that time, I started working on the 28th birthday, I think, of the restaurant. It had been there for 28 years. Mm -hmm. It was running like a machine. Mm -hmm. There was a proper way to tie the trash bag to take it out. Everything had been thought of, you know? (laughs) And so to me, it was like I had arrived, you know? Like (laughs) there was a right way to do everything, and I wanted to learn it. And so this was that moment when I was realizing, like, there were still, like, job fairs on campus. And I remember as an English major, I was like, am I going to have to get a job in advertising? Like, I just... I think it was sort of this, um, the fates aligned. It was a moment where I needed to figure out something to do. And then I had like the most beautiful, enchanting possible thing to do right in front of me. So within three or four weeks, I started begging them to let me volunteer in the kitchen. And I started coming in like, you know, at 6 a.m. and peeling garlic and straining chicken stock and doing whatever they would let me do. And I fumbled for a really long time. They gave me a long list of cookbooks to read. I continued busing too. And they were like, while you're busing, make sure to watch the cooks as much as you can. Watch what they're doing. Pay attention. And so I just tried to soak it all in. And then eventually they gave me a job. Well, first they hired me as an intern, which Mm -hmm. is an unpaid job. Mm -hmm. And I worked unpaid for about a year while I did other jobs after I graduated. And then eventually, finally, I got hired for the lowest job in the kitchen, which was called pasta lettuce and garde manger. (laughs) And pasta (laughs) lettuce is the person who comes in and makes the fresh pasta for the restaurant, and then also um, washes all the greens and washes all the lettuces. And the garde manger would be translated as like keeper of the food. And really the person inventories what's in all the walk-ins and gives that list to the chef in the morning when he or she arrives so that the chef can write the menu based on what's there and what's coming and make sure that food isn't going bad. Accepts deliveries and puts away like 50 pound bags of flour or like carries in whole pigs and whole lambs from the street, but doesn't really ever get to cook. The only cooking that either of those people really ever do is making and rolling out the pasta dough and then also um, making the staff meal. Mm-hmm. And so it's the like grunt work, you know? Yeah. And I don't know how much that job makes now, but at the time I made $10 an hour, you know? Which like thank like thankfully my rent was three hundred and thirty dollars a month or something <laughs> Those you know. Were the days. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when you
1: talk about how you uh, or you write about how you then, you know, eventually you like became a chef there, and then eventually we had a chef at at another <laughs> restaurant where you're the you know basically in charge. But I'm curious, in that time frame, was there a point at which you said, "I can do this"? Like, was there something that you made that you were sort of like, "Oh, I'm a real." chef now? Or did it just sort of like accrue over time? I'm interested in this also in context of the book because a lot of what you talk about is like anyone can cook. And I'm curious at what point someone crosses over from like, "Uh, I don't really know what I'm doing to like, okay, I know what I'm doing.
2: Wow. that's That's a good question. I had a journal that um, I would go and at the end of every workday and write everything that I had done that day. I'd write every new skill that I had learned and who taught it to me. Oh, wow. And it was little... like It actually gives me great joy to open it and read it. And it was things like... Um, Today, I learned how to fillet a canned anchovy, <laughs> you know, like the most basic things. <laughs> Lori taught me how to do it by ah. running it under the water, you know. <laughs> and so there was a point at which I no longer wrote in that journal. And I think that's probably about the time when mm. I got confident enough. And so, but I guess to come back to the book and like how everything sort of synergized into this philosophy for me is that. At Chez Panisse, the menu changes every single day. And even before I was hired, it was insanely overwhelming because I was this, like, very eager student at school <laughs> this trying to always please my, you know, teachers and parents and everything. And I was in this place where I knew nothing. There was nothing I could do right. They would send me to get parsley and I would come back with cilantro because they were, like, I couldn't tell them apart, you know. And there were I, any mistake that could be done, I absolutely committed that mistake. And so... Um, We would come in every single day and sit down with the chef who had by then received the inventory and written the menu for the day based on what we had and like what was in season and what he or she felt like making, basically. And then there would sort of be this dreamy menu meeting where the chef would describe what he or she envisioned for the menu and talk everyone through the basics of making the dish, very vague amounts, (laughs) and then send everyone off to go make the stuff. And so... I just would sit there reeling because half the time I didn't even know what they were talking about. They, you know, they were saying things like beef dobe. I didn't know what that was, or you know, like like poulet au la provençal. I was like, what is that? You know, I didn't even know the words to translate what they were talking about, let alone like how they could possibly be made. They never really said, oh, this should be at the in the oven for 45 minutes at 350 degrees. They never said you'll need eight cups of that and six cups of that. Nobody ever opened a cookbook. No one ever looked at recipes. Very rarely for certain things we looked at recipes. But mm-hmm. somehow every day people would go make the stuff, whether it was from France or sometimes inspired by India or Italy or Spain or Morocco. And I just didn't understand how these people knew how to make anything and everything without a cookbook. When I was always sent home every day to like, and my homework was always like, go read that cookbook. Yeah. So there didn't seem to be a connection between like what was my education and what was actually happening. And I just, I was reeling for a really long time. I felt like I was treading water for about a year. And then eventually I started to see these patterns. And a lot of what helped actually was I would sometimes help on the pastry side and sometimes on the savory side. And I started to see like what was similar. And so I noticed, for example, On the pastry side, we almost always baked everything around 350 degrees, whereas on the savory side, we almost always, when we wanted to brown stuff, we'd put it into a much hotter oven, like whether it was 400 or 425 or 500. And even on the savory side, the ovens were so well used that all of the... um, temperatures had worn off the dial. So a huh. lot of times cooks just sort of could tell what temperature it was by putting their arm inside the oven. And so <laughs> I was like, I don't understand how these people know how to do this stuff, you know. And I noticed after a while that we would always bring things up to a boil on on the savory side and then turn it down to a simmer. There were very few cases in which we boiled things the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Every single day at the end of the day, we would go down to the butcher room, butcher the meat, and always salt it for the next day, no matter what it was. So I was like, okay, we're always salting the meat. You know, we're always using this like vast amount of salt in the water. What is it about salt? Butter was always treated one way on the pastry side and had to be cold so that your tart dough could turn out flaky. But then on the savory side, whenever we put butter oil in a pan, the pan had to be hot Before we put in the fat. And then so there were just these sort of patterns. And I was like, okay, I'm just kept noticing these words were just floating around. Salt, fat, acid, heat, salt, fat, acid, heat. And I realized that it didn't matter what we were making. And really, sometimes when a cook might have been assigned a dish that he or she had not yet made, it wasn't that he or she couldn't like figure out their way because they knew the general steps of a braise are Mm -hmm. like, put the vegetables down, brown the meat, put the liquid in, bring it to a simmer, turn it down to a boil today's braise might be French and we'll use butter to brown the meat and we'll put bay leaves and black peppercorn in there. Tomorrow's braise might be Indian and we'll put, you know, cumin and turmeric in there. So it was sometimes this thing where I started to see like, oh, I get it. We're always making braises (laughs) and just the flavorings are changing or we're always roasting vegetables and maybe the fat that we're using is changing. And so I just started to sort of put together all the pieces of how people cooked without recipes and like following the seasons and i remember i had i did finally have like a brilliant mind moment where it all sort of or beautiful mind beautiful mind mind, mind moment and it all sort of came together and um i went to one of the chefs chris lee who ended up becoming my mentor and i asked him i was like I think I figured something out like I've noticed every time at tasters you guys are always saying like this needs salt or it needs a little bit of lemon it needs some acid or some cheese like it seems like everything is like about salt fat acid and heat like that's the way I figured it out and he's like yeah duh like we all know that he's like all good cooks know that Sabine. but I was like it's not in any of the books it's not in anything that you guys have told me to read for this past year no one has ever sat me down and said Salt, fat, acid, heat, pay attention to these things and you can navigate your way through this kitchen. Yet when I come to you, you say you all know that. Right, right, right. (laughs) It was just like intuited
1: (laughs) underlying principles. And
2: even (laughs) two days ago, I I got my final copies of the book and I brought a copy up to Chez Panisse to drop it off for the chefs and the sommelier who's worked there for, you know, I don't know probably 35 years or something he came up to me and he's like you stole my idea like that's my idea for a book oh really yeah they're probably a lot of them are kicking themselves and even and uh, it's really funny i was like yeah i'd never said it was original you know since day one like you guys told me this is the thing but no one ever like quantified it. No one ever sat down and articulated this. And when I did bring it to the chefs at Chez Panisse, the next day, the chef sent me a thank you card. And I was like, why'd you send me a thank you card? And she's like, nobody has ever put our way of cooking down. In a, this is a cooking school in this book. This explains, I'm going to make all of my cooks read this from now on. So oh, well, that's like, high okay, praise cool, right there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that was part of what was so intriguing to me reading it. I mean, first of all, it says at the beginning, I recommend reading this book from start to finish, which is a bold thing. That's not really how people, I think, experience cookbooks generally. You're saying, read this first and understand. And but it did make me feel like I like to cook and I like to use recipes, but that I never understand why they're telling me to do anything like put some vinegar in this or do this. You just you just do it and you're sort of operating from this place of trust. Our, <laughs> yeah, trust and, <laughs> and ignorance. Yeah. but you had the idea to write the book at what point?
2: Actually, right then I had the idea um, when you put those when I was probably 20 years old. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to write this book. It's going to be 12 pages long. Like these things are not that complicated. (laughs) It'll be just like three pages for each thing done. And I'm going to change the world. And I even like got out a pad. I still have the journal, you know, and I started writing the ideas and I realized I didn't know enough about cooking or about writing. And so it just it became the system into which I filed everything that I was learning and it just yeah it's sort of I don't know that I continued with my dream of writing the book all throughout cooking but it certainly became the way that I started teaching other cooks how to cook and it was a really easy lingo and still now like there are cooks who have worked for me at different points who've gone on to become chefs and like win awards and stuff and I always like email them and congratulate them. And one of them recently wrote me back. He's like, you taught me how to make salad. Like it's salt, fat, acid. That's how I teach all of my cooks now. It's just about getting that balance. It's such an easy way to describe this. And I was like, yes.
1: <laughs> so what point did you come back to actually writing the book after you set it aside? Because I know you, you, you worked with Michael Pollan mm-hmm. on the book that you were his... Teacher. Actually, I wanted to ask you, like... <laughs>
2: how did that happen? <laughs> well, how did it happen?
1: And then... Uh, well, and then we'll I'll get to the other question So about it.
2: I... Uh, well, I will say, just like that letter at Chez Panisse, like, there have been a series of letters that I've written in my life that have sort of helped me get things... I've asked for things. And so the second letter after the Chez Panisse letter was... When I was working at a restaurant called Ecolo in Berkeley, which is no longer there, I noticed one day. I ate there. Oh, you did? That's awesome. For a friend's birthday. I hope you liked it. I did like it. Okay, good. But I saw Michael was coming in the next day, and I was a huge fan of his. He... Was writing about issues that I cared about. He was writing about food in a way that I didn't feel like other people were writing about, especially in that moment in the early 2000s where he, as sort of an outsider in the food world, as a journalist, was bringing a much broader attention to the issues that we were paying attention to in our restaurants that I was spending a lot of time researching and learning about. And so I very much admired him and I noticed he was coming in. So I wrote him a letter and I said, oh, I'm such a big fan of yours. I would love to come take one of your classes at Cal. I would love to audit your class. Please let me do that. (laughs) And he wrote me back. I mean, much to his credit, this very busy man wrote me back three weeks later. You must
1: write really good letters.
2: I don't know. This one wasn't that good. Did you write letters (laughs) that people didn't
1: respond to where you're like, can you help me? And they didn't. I mean,
2: there must have been... I don't know. There must have been, right? I don't know. But that one, I don't know. I think that one was really just a jotted down card. Michael is just really good that way. But he wrote me back and he was like, "Come see me." So I came back and I asked him if I could audit his class. And at first he said no, and I persisted and. He let me take it. So that was a really incredible thing for me. That was 2006. I went and took this class at the journalism school at Cal. And, you know, I had spent eight years by that point developing this incredible food community. And now I stepped into this incredible ready-made journalistic and writing community. So not only did I get to meet Michael and get to know him and work with him, but I also was in this class with these incredible writers who have all gone on to go do and Amazing work, like many of them have been on long form podcasts. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it was really important in retrospect. It was just an incredible thing for me to find my way into a writing community. And Michael really encouraged me to just keep writing. And he was like, just start, just write for the edible San Francisco. It doesn't have to be a fancy thing. Like you just write by writing. So just start writing and keep going. And also, he was w- about to start work on a book about. Cooking and human nature. And um, having been a long term stalker of Michael Pollan's, <laughs> I knew that sort of his, he followed the academic model in his work and that he would sort of give. A talk, maybe turn it into a long form piece for the times magazine or the New York times. And then that would become sort of the founding chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. So I sort of knew that he was going to write about cooking. Cause in 2009, this big piece that he wrote, it was called out of the kitchen and onto the couch. Yeah. And um, I could tell, I knew he was going in that direction. And so I wrote him this letter. I was like, I can tell that you're going to write a book about cooking. And the way that you work is like, you go down, you know, to the ground floor and you're going to need a cooking teacher. I want to be your cooking teacher. <laughs> And he wrote me back, he's like, I'm on vacations, I mean (laughs) But you know, a couple months later he wrote me back, he's like, I had a brilliant idea. I'm gonna need a cooking teacher and I think it should be you. I was like, Okay, good idea (laughs) So he hired me to teach him how to cook and so I would go over to their house on Sunday. And cook with him and his wife and his son. And it very quickly became this very, like, joyous thing. And also very quickly because he's super smart and really good at sort of noticing systems and organizing systems and stuff. So very quickly he picked up on my obsession with these four elements. Mm-hmm. And he would interview me periodically so he would have quotes from me. So one day we were sitting down. He's like, what's the deal? Like, you're so obsessed with salt acid. And heat." And I was like, yeah, that's my system. That's how I teach people how to cook. And I've always thought I would write a book about it. And he was like, there's your book. Because every week at this point, I would come in with like a really harebrained scheme for a book. and (laughs) Like, well, what about a memoir about teaching this gutter punk how to cook? And uh, he would every week, he'd be like, no, that's horrible. Those ideas are bad. You have to do this one. This one's a good idea. And And I said, no, I don't think I can do that. It just seems too hard. It's like that book, it won't have beautiful food photos. (laughs) I was like, I really want a beautiful book. And he said, listen to me, you live in an insane alternate reality where everybody who you know who's writing books, because I know a lot of chefs mostly and him, those people are already celebrities with a profile. And so they're selling their books based on celebrity. But that's not what publishers want. Publishers want a book that's built on a unique and strong idea. And that's what this is. He said, I've never seen this anywhere else. No one's ever written about this. And he's read
1: probably every every book book
2: ever. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, no one has talked about this. This is your book. Go figure out how to do it. He said, go turn your thing into a curriculum, teach it, and then you'll figure out how to turn that curriculum into a book. So I did exactly what he told me to do and it worked. Yeah. Well, my question
1: was going to yeah. be so much the opposite of that, which was when you were teaching him to cook and he was clearly writing a book about it. Were you afraid that Michael Pollan was going to write the book based on your philosophy and take your book? That's what that was oh, really? I was. Oh, really? That's so you. funny. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I had no. No, that was not. Also, our minds are so different. You know, it's very funny. Um, we are so different. I'm like motivated in all things by my gut and my heart. And Michael is so analytical and thoughtful and organized. So they're just, I'd never thought in any million years that there would ever be any way that we would be telling the same story. Plus the other thing that was very funny when he was like, you have to write this book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I said. I was like, no, the only reason you want me to do that is because it's divided in four and all your books are divided in four. Like... <laughs> but uh, I don't think, yeah, that was, there was just never any problem. And, you know, today, actually, Wendy McNaughton and I.
1: Who illustrated illust- this book and has also been on this podcast. Yeah,
2: she's quite wonderful. We were talking a little bit about Michael this morning and just appreciating what how much he's done for me and for this book. And I said something like, you know. As much as Michael supported me in making this book and really pushed for me to make it and has seen it at many different points, I really don't think until the moment we gave him the book with the illustrations did he understand how I was trying to undo what a cookbook was and how I was trying to use ideas and illustrations and stories to convey concepts in a new way. And there's also like a lot of hubris involved in ever saying that to somebody. So I could never go to his house and be like, oh, no, I'm going to reinvent cookbooks. <laughs> Although you're <laughs> in the Bay Area. So you could have said like,
1: I'm going to disrupt the I'm disrupt the cookbook industry. And maybe I'll say that. Actually, <laughs> someone probably had given you like a lot of investment for that. That's true. <laughs> you should use that. I will. Thank Disrupting you. Disrupting.
2: OK, the cookbook. you get 10 percent. OK.
1: <laughs> but you had I mean, you obviously had a A structure from that, like you had these four things, but that's only a little bit of the way there. And I'm curious when you sat down to actually write it, had you already been sort of like teaching this to other people in a way that you could then distill it into what's here? Or did you start with a blank page and say, okay, what story do I start with? How do I develop this?
2: It's been a long road. So as I taught the classes. I developed a curriculum and I had handouts. I had like 20 page handouts for each class. And as I would teach, I also realized that words sometimes weren't enough. So sometimes I would draw very crude illustrations to illustrate certain concepts for my classes. Mm. And that was where I started to realize like, oh, maybe illustration is the way to go here. But there were so many things I wanted to accomplish. And then there were also a pile of things I had to accomplish that I didn't want to accomplish, chiefly writing recipes. To me, in some ways, it felt very disingenuous to write an entire book teaching you how to cook without recipes and then following that with another book's worth of recipes. Mm-hmm. But the like realities of the cookbook writing world are that I don't know who you have to be to write a food book without recipes. Like They just won't publish a book without recipes. Yeah, so I pretty much had to do that. I also learned over the course of teaching the classes, You know, sometimes I would spend 40 hours with my students over the course of the four classes. And the whole time I'm like let's taste our way there guys like just use salt fat acid heat to guide you you don't need to like refer to recipes and we'd stand there and make the Caesar salad dressing together and taste it and does it need more anchovy and parmesan and we'd get there and I was so proud of them and then literally at the like last dinner they would be like okay so where's the recipe packet so (laughs) they wanted to come out of the class with like
1: a Guy that they yeah, could Yeah, and back I
2: realized to. I was like, OK, I get it. Like, I can't just like throw the people to the wolves like they need something. So I came to terms with the fact that, like, as much as I would like you to not use recipes, I can't expect you to sort of read 200 pages and all of a sudden know how to cook. Right. You got to practice your way there. So I also felt like I had to find a way to write recipes that I felt comfortable with. So I knew I had to do recipes. I knew I had to teach you these four elements. I knew there would be some science in there to explain the concepts i knew that i would use a lot of storytelling and especially m- stories of my own sort of aha moments mm-hmm. and a lot of mistakes which i have made so many of them <laughs> cuz i kept trying to remember what it felt like to be the person who didn't know because that's who i was talking to and so i kept trying to put myself in that position and you know i probably rewrote it took me f- i think 4 times of writing the book to get the structure right the first time I um, I was like, I'm just gonna pretend I'm Michael Pollan and write it. <laughs> that one didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> then I pretended I was my friend Tamar Adler who wrote this beautiful book called An Everlasting Meal. Who there's a lot of narrative in there and that didn't work. And then finally by then I was at a writing residency in New Hampshire and I was like, Maybe twelve essays will do it, each three essays for each one. That didn't work. So I just had to keep doing it over and over again. There was a lot of heartache. It took me three and a half years to write the first half of the book, the education part, and it took me seven months to do the recipes. So like recipes are easy. Yeah, (laughs) even like testing them multiple times and like all this stuff, but figuring out how to redo something that's been done the same way for hundreds of years is hard.
1: And then were you under pressure from your publisher to get them what they wanted?
2: I think the time pressure came from myself for Uh sure. And it was probably in in some ways financial, and also because I'm insane and I don't, I just wanted to put out something really, really good. And um, yeah, there was a lot, it was really hard and really challenging. How did you get out? I had to break it down into pieces, I had to get one section right. For me, the fat section was really hard. So ultimately, I love tidiness in writing a lot. I love systems. I love finding patterns and things. And I kept trying to use patterns and systems that already existed that I had seen in other books. Someone told me to read The Levels of the Game by John McPhee, Mm -hmm. and I read that and I was like, maybe I can use this as a, you know, like I was just reading anything I could get my hands on to try and figure out how to tell this story of going back and forth and like micro macro, all this kind of stuff, and finally, My editor, when I turned in the first version, which was 12 really messy essays that didn't align and they weren't, there wasn't consistency among the four chapters, there wasn't a way that I felt like I was guiding the reader to somewhere where he or she could know where to expect to go next, you know, and uh, my editor was like, you can't do this, like you have to find a way to make these four things the same. And I understood that as a writer, but then as a cook and a person who understood these four elements, I really had a hard time figuring out how to do that because salt, fat and acid are tangible things and heat is not. There isn't a way where they're equal, you know, and salt comes in one form. It's a mineral. Fat comes in four a million different forms and mm-hmm. it plays a million different roles. There were so many ways where I had all the different things that I had ever heard of a writer having. All the post-it note walls, the pieces of paper, <laughs> you know, like the thing. Like, just like I was trying so hard to figure out an organization. And finally, really what happened was I printed everything out and I cut everything up into pieces of like what it was that I was teaching. And what's the story that I was telling? And I just started repasting stuff, and I started to see I could break it down into science and flavor. That those were sort of the two things I was trying to tell about the, each element, and that um, I could walk you through them. And the most complicated science had to do with fat. Uh huh. And there were a lot of moments I got to have aha moments as a writer that felt so good, like and just as a thinker, where I had never even, as a cook, sat down to think about fat and what it does for our cooking. And it was really easy for me to think about what salt does for our cooking. Salt Mm -hmm. makes food taste good. Um, When you put salt on meat in advance, it helps it have a more tender and moist texture when it's cooked. And that's about it. Like There are other things, but that's pretty much it. Whereas fat does a million different things. So I had to be like, what is fat doing? And I just started making lists of what does fat do and how and when and all this kind of stuff. And I started to see patterns that really fat's about texture. And then I was like, okay, how many textures can I get from fat? And so I made these crazy lists. I read as many books as I called all the cooks I knew. And the five textures that I could figure out that fat yielded were crispy, flaky, tender, light, and creamy. And so then I was like, okay, if I can break this down, then the science part can be these five textures. And the flavor part can be about flavor. And there, and I got one. So once I got fat done, then I knew I could do the other ones. And it all fell into place a lot more quickly. But... I also had not been trained really ever as a journalist or a science writer, Mm -hmm. and like that was really tricky. There was a lot of chemistry, and I'm not a chemist. I have no idea how to do any of this stuff. And so, yeah, there were a lot of pitfalls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You come out of a Berkeley, Oakland, Bay Area food scene, which is very, there's just a lot going on there, and it's like a real hotbed for great food of all different varieties and different styles of cooking and everything else, but there's also like, it feels like there's a line between, like, ingredients and sourcing the ingredients and, like, something that's very either precious or pretentious or is way along that line of sort of, like, artisanal mayonnaise that feels like it's tipped over into something else. And if I felt like that was also something that, to me, you had to navigate, was, like, this book can't feel like it's on that side of it because then it's, it's easily dismissible. It's limiting,
2: Yeah. Absolutely. To me, I wanted maybe the tidiest way to like illustrate this is the book is being made into a show,
1: mm-hmm. and like I into a, te- a television,
2: into show. A television mm-hmm. show, and I had to go audition for the like network executives. And when I was doing that, you know, I did the whole Samin experience, and I cooked like, for them, and I was my silliest self, and telling them these stories, and sort of explaining these four elements. And I that morning I had gone to the farmer's market in L.A. and bought like the most beautiful lettuces and the most beautiful loaf of bread I could find. I did the full Chez Panisse. I did the full thing that I have been trained to do. And I set up the scene and made the food so beautiful and perfect. And then they came to this thing and they were totally enjoying it and they were supposed to stay an hour and they stayed two hours and they're having this great time. And then at the end, one of the guys... You know, they're asking me all these questions and he was like, "Okay, so I get it. So this whole thing, it's about the artisans for you. Like it's about the purveyors. And I just said, no, I said, you know, to me, I have been trained in a kind of cooking. I will never not cook that way. I will never not care about that stuff. But that's not my message. My message is that I really think that anybody can cook. I think that anybody who wants to can learn, and I think that it will make your life better and fill your life with joy. And that's what I would like to do, and I don't think it's that hard, and I think if you learn these four things, you can do it. And it took me a lot of months of um, really sitting with myself and thinking about all of the Chapinese cooks who've become authors, who've come before me, and other authors not from Chapinese who've come before me, and thinking about how they've approached this and maybe succeeded or not succeeded in the preciousness or not preciousness Mm -hmm. and um, to figure out what my line was and would be and really to me I realized it had to be about good cooking and it couldn't be about organic food. I never want to shame someone into feeling like their ingredients aren't good enough or that their sensibilities aren't good enough. I want to encourage you and make you feel really good about what you're cooking no matter where your ingredients come from and I think ultimately if you love cooking and you get better at it, that you will want to buy fresher and better ingredients. You will develop a curiosity that takes you to the Indian grocery store or to the farmer's market. So I don't need to tell you that that's how you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And that was, yeah, I absolutely felt like I had to navigate that because those values are deeply important to me, but that's not my message. Other people have already given that message out to the world. Yeah.
1: And on the other side of that, while we're on the topic, I was just genuinely curious, like when you were cooking at places like Chez Panisse and Ecolo? Ecolo, yeah. yeah. Those are high-end places, but presumably like a lot of people that pay that kind of money to go like also really appreciate food. But I'm just curious, like what was your experience relative to how many people were kind of people who had money who didn't really appreciate the food versus like people like when you saved up with your boyfriend at the time and came and like... How many assholes do you have to cook for at a place like that? (laughs)
2: So many. I mean, the thing about it, especially now, is food has become like a cultural marker, right? Yeah. And so there are a lot of people who hire good cooks, you know, to come in their homes and cook stuff or be private chefs or come into fancy restaurants for whom it's just like a notch on the belt, right? And they don't care about the food and they don't care about the – like the – provenance of this egg you know <laughs> <laughs> right. which i deeply care about but <laughs> or they care about
1: it to the extent that they want to tell 10 other people exactly. like i ate the egg that was the rarest egg that was gathered yeah. in the antarctica or there's whatever. a
2: lot of that and to me that's you know it's funny because i've ended up um i don't love eating in restaurants anymore i'm kind of over it there was a period in which i was like needed to know all the restaurant gossip eating all the restaurants and to me now I've really distilled what I care about around food. And it's sitting around with the people I love. And every time I come to New York, people are like, where are you eating? And I'm like, at my friend's house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're, so. Not, you're not sort of like hitting all the top restaurants I and three... seeing what they're doing. And... No.
2: I mean, I'll go if someone wants to go with me, but it's not how I want to spend my money or my time. I, I have three places that I go to in New York like every single time and they're really fun and they just taste really good and I feel really good after I eat there and that's what I want so yeah Yeah. well
1: I'm interested in this analogy that you use a lot in the book or it comes up in different parts of the book about cooking being like jazz because I at one point wanted to be a jazz piano player when I was younger (laughs) and one thing I discovered is that it's sort of generally true in the same vein that like if you learn the scales and you learn the chords you can then improvise on top of the chords which is sort of what you're saying about cooking you learn the principles and then you can improvise but it's also true that like i very quickly ran into the fact that there were some people who were way more talented than me <laughs> who could like really digest those concepts and like they had genuine musical talent in a way that i did not and i'm i assume that like cooking has a spectrum along that that you feel like you could pick up those concepts quickly because you have a mind for cooking? Or do you think that's absolutely not true, that anyone could just learn these things and then practice and then be able to make great stuff?
2: Man, I really think cooking is about practice. Hmm. And is there one of those sayings that's like, Talent is practice plus, I don't know. I'm sure there's one of those inspirational posters. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, I do believe in talent. I don't think I'm the most talented cook in the world. I think I'm really determined and I work really hard. And I think I have like a crazy amount of professional resilience that just allows me to fail. And I think there's a lot of failing involved in cooking that you have to be okay with. And one of the beautiful things for me is like. Cooking and writing, I kind of couldn't exist as a cook or a writer. I kind of need to be both because Uh they fulfill these two totally different parts of myself and my brain. And cooking is really social. It's very physical. And also, you don't have any time to become attached to your product, right? Like you literally... It's gone. You hand it off and someone eats it. And literally tomorrow it's shit. Right. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) like I can't sit around and be like on April 22nd, you know, 1999, I cooked the best. I don't remember, you know, whereas with writing, it's the exact opposite. It's super solitary. It's super cerebral. And. You have all the time in the world to get attached to your thing and, like, freak out about it. And I have so much, like, I need probably up my anti-anxiety medication or something. But, like, <laughs> but uh, you know, and so I think if I were one or the other, I would probably drive myself crazy. Like, I wouldn't be satisfied intellectually if I were only a cook. But I definitely would probably like take myself to the brink of insanity if I were only a writer I need some sort of a physical outlet and they they're very complimentary and it's really nice to have two things to do but I don't think I have anything other than resilience and it's been really nice to sort of try and apply that resilience to the writing which like I was forced to do right I had to throw it away and start over I had to throw it away and start over so.
1: mm-hmm. and now you're maybe entering like a third dimension of this, which I don't want to say celebrity exactly, (laughs) but you are, you're talking, you got a TV show that's network TV show that is in process now and the book's coming out. So I'm kind of catching you at this moment of like things are building and I'm interested in how that feels right now.
2: It's a weird moment, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really weird moment. I mean, it's very weird. I have had these two careers for so long where I cooked for $10, $12, $14, $15, $18 10, 12, 14, 15, 18 dollars an hour for a lot of years while I was watching all of my friends like become fabulous lawyers and consultants and mm-hmm. do all make all this money and stuff and we were they would come eat the restaurants and I was They were like so impressed. And I was like, Yeah, but I'm the one who's like on my knees at the end of the night, you know, cleaning the walk in floor and like throwing away rotten chicken stock. Like, you get to go home to the fabulous life. And I can't even afford to eat in this restaurant where I work.
1: And so that's a wild (laughs) idea.
2: And, um, and same thing with writing. Like, I've had my head down for a long, long time writing this stuff and I mean taking four years to write any book and definitely taking four years to write a cookbook it's kind of unheard of like people crank them out in a year or two years I have one friend who wrote two books in the time it took me to write one it's just I've had my head down for a long time so it's very surreal to be in this moment where not only is the book about to come out tomorrow but like it's going to be a show and um it's overwhelming it's exciting i don't really i go to a therapy a lot i talked about like i spend a lot of time in therapy <laughs> a lot of time uh, <laughs> and trying to figure out what it is that i want and how do i make time to do the things i care about and how do i take care of myself what's been interesting is i have always been a student and like a deep believer in practice you know when i first started cooking like all the chefs at Chez Panisse, they would just say to me every like almost every day they're like oh yeah you won't know anything till you've been cooking for 10 years and this was before malcolm gladwell's 10,000 hours thing but then that came out and i was like oh 10,000 hours is 10 years you know and there is a way where after 10 years it just becomes part of your body you know and your your body knows how to do it and my senses are attuned i can hear a piece of chicken burning from two rooms away mm. right there are ways where i just know it i just know it in my bones and That was really drilled into me as a cook. And so in a way, I had been writing for newspapers and magazines and stuff before I sold the book, but it felt wrong in some ways to get this huge book deal and have this huge expectation. I had that thought a lot. I was like, how am I supposed to deliver the masterful thing the first time? Am I not supposed to have, like, a million chances to make mistakes first like I have with cooking? So that was something I had to really work through. And it's interesting, too. I haven't done a ton of the filming yet, but just we've done a lot of practice work. And mm-hmm. I've, I've learned a lot. There's so much to know. And, like, there's angles and ways you're supposed to stand, talk to the camera, or don't talk to the camera. And... Um, just ways to be, and I, as you may have noticed in our time here, am very verbose, and so they, you know, you're supposed to speak in compact sound bites, oh, yeah. and they like wanna, all of these things that I'm learning, and they got to do
1: those teasers for the episode. Don't. They got to have
2: those. <laughs> it's just a, and so it's this interesting thing where like the stakes keep getting higher every time I'm doing any of these things. And yet I'm still an amateur at every time I'm doing a new thing. I'm not, I haven't mastered the thing. I don't know what I'm doing. So part of it is maybe trying to figure out if I can like adjust my philosophy. And I do still believe in practice. And a lot of people are like, you know, if you watch season five of, I don't know, Oprah versus season one of Oprah, like, of course she gets better with time, you know? And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess there's a, clearly they see something in me. There's a way where we can make something together and it will just have to get better over time. And I have to be okay with putting out something less than my best or, Imperfect, and you don't get ten years. (laughs) Yeah, of television. Yeah, totally. (laughs) To like ten years of practice. I was telling my agent yesterday. I was like, "Oh yeah, when we like work out this deal with the network, make sure you tell them the Samin way is like we sell the thing, and then I like agonize over it for four to six years, (laughs) and then I'll deliver a really good thing." Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) just build that into the contract. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, is Golden Boy Pizza.
2: Oh my God, do you love it or do you love it? Uh, is it still there? <laughs> it's still there. It's still... what's your favorite? New I was York? <laughs> so uh,
1: struck by that. Well, the funny thing is that I I was diagnosed with celiac disease mm. in like well, over ten years ago now. But prior to that, Golden Boy Pizza in North Beach in San Francisco was like where I wanted to end up at the end of any given night. Absolutely had to end up (laughs) at Golden Boy. This particular friend of mine who lived in North Beach, we would always go there. And then I saw it mentioned in your book. More than just being nostalgic, it actually felt to me like just a reference to like this kind of cooking and trying to cook well and this type of food and Chez Panisse and all this. It can be very intimidating and it can seem like, you're not a person who would ever eat a Golden Boy pizza. Oh, my
2: God. I lo- Like, to me, it's so funny. Right now, I'm doing a thing for New York Magazine where I have to catalog everything I'm eating for a week. And I'm always like... Are they really going to want to know about like the PBJs and the like, and there's a place every time I come to New York, I stay with some friends in Brooklyn Heights and there's a place like, um, it's called Table 87 on Atlantic. It's like yeah. a coal oven coal pizza. Coal fired pizza. Yeah. yeah I but... love that place. And you go and you get the chili. I just am on a hunt for deliciousness. It doesn't have to be fancy deliciousness, you know, like <laughs> I'm not a snob. And that's the thing is most of the people who work at Shape and East are not snobs either. In fact, Alice will probably kill me for saying this. Maybe she doesn't even know, but, um. One of my favorite things, which is just this phenomenon that happens every time, is, like, there's one or two times a year Chez throws this, like, wonderful, amazing staff party on the, like, main farm where almost all of our food is produced. And usually the chefs will cook or they'll hire a former person who cooks just, like, the most beautiful, you know, like, spit-roasted lamb or whatever. Like, there'll be huge paellas in an eight-foot pan and just this, like, gorgeous thing. It's, like... It's dream wedding basically worth of food and it's just this magical thing and they get buses for us to take us up there so no one has to drive and you can drink. And every year on the way back, like you've spent this whole day <laughs> eating this magical stuff on the most organic farm in the world and you come back and everyone's like, let's go to In-N-Out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like there's just a way <laughs> where like you all, I don't know, we all want deliciousness. And the honestly, All of those foods that are, quote, unquote, like trashy or whatever, not fancy enough. The thing about it is like they're using salt, fat, acid and heat to make their food taste good, too. Like it's just there was that book that came out a few years ago, Salt, Sugar, Fat. And that was right when I was selling my book that was on the bestseller list. Mm. And everyone was like, shouldn't you be worried? Like this book's about like how the, you know, food industry, big food has used these ingredients to trick us. And like every these are bad. These things are bad. And I was like, well... A, like my sugar is not one of my things and B, yeah, like the idea behind what they're doing and what I'm telling you to think about is the same, which is humans are wired to like salt and to like fat and stuff. And I'm just telling you how to use it better to make your own food taste good. Those guys are like using it to develop stuff to trick you into buying more Doritos or whatever. But like, but it doesn't mean, you know, like and now you can understand why Doritos are good and maybe eat less Doritos, but just eat some. I still eat Doritos. I mean, I deeply love them. (laughs) (laughs) but uh (laughs) good cooking it doesn't have to be fancy like i think anyone can do it
1: well samin thank you for coming on the podcast
2: thanks for having me evan
1: that's it for the podcast thank you for listening thank you to samin once again for coming in back then Thanks for listening in 2018. Uh, we had a great year. We, we really enjoyed it. We hope that you did too. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Janelle Piper, our editor, and Tyler McCloskey, our intern, and our sponsors for the year, Pit Writers and MailChimp. We thank them both, and we will be back with a new episode next week in 2019.